the weekly show with David J. Maloney. This week, David talks to trailblazing guitarist Steve Hackett of Genesis. And now, here's your host, David J. Maloney. Our featured guest tonight helped create one of the quintessential sounds of the progressive rock movement of the 70s. His time in the band Genesis led to world tours, countless hits, and would eventually spawn a solo career for himself and many of his bandmates that would find success all its own. Here to chat about his incredible music career is none other than world-famous guitarist Steve Hackett. Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Lovely to talk. Thank you. So uh, it's obvious from the career paths uh, of both you and your brother, John, that creativity runs in the family. Uh, I mean, what do you make of that? I mean, where did that, where do you think that came from? Well, both sides of the family. My father played a lot of uh, different instruments just for fun. And uh, on my mother's side, there are, there are musicians. The Jewish side of the family, there are uh, musicians. So um, <clears throat> it's there, there's quite a lot in the genes, believe me, uh, of, of all of that. So uh, uh, luckily... We both went professional with it, you know, whereas others maybe were army buglers and drummers and uh, and various various things. My my dad was able to play a number of things, bugle and clarinet and harmonica, which he passed on to me. When I was a kid, I was trying to be just like him from the age of two onwards with harmonica. So that it, music was always very important to me from a very, very, very young age. When I was 13, I read To Kill a Mockingbird, and that inspired me to become uh, an attorney. What inspired you to pursue music as a career? Was it your Well, as I say, yes, I think think it was. Uh, um, There was always music in the household. And, um, of course, I was born in the days before rock and roll. I was born in 1950. So um, that meant that um, radio was extremely varied um a lot of it was forces radio just after the war um uh what you would have is these sort of family favorites to different postings in the what used to be the british empire and um and so um radio would have a diet of glenn miller one minute elvis presley the next actually maybe I'm not sure that Elvis had arrived on the scene quite at that point, but you know, you would get some gluck, you would get some, in other words, you'd get classical music, some big band, uh, pop music. It was all just light entertainment before it had become specialized. And so um, you could have anything on radio at that point in time. Don't forget, we only had two radio stations in Britain at this time. We only had the home service, which was for current affairs and news, all of that. And the light program, which covered absolutely everything else. So uh, not a lot of choice in those days of standardization. But, um, of course, it was all to change. And you always had a huge variety, I gather, in America. Or so it seemed to us, which is why we Brits were always looking to America for inspiration. And I still do. I read that one of the albums that had a huge impact on you was Bob Dylan's Highway 61 Revisited. Yes. What what made yep. that album so special in your mind? Well, I think he was working with a great band at that time. And so I think that having been, you know, a one-man show up to that point, had a band that had um, various talents in. Mike Bloomfield on guitar, Al Cooper, Al Cooper on keyboards. Yes, and I think the combination of those two, when they were working with other people, 
was was a great mix. Of course, in the mid nineteen sixties, I'd seen um, uh, Mike Bloomfield working live with the Paul Butterfield Blues Band, and um, and that was an incredible combination as far as I was concerned. But uh, I was unaware at that time that um, uh, that Mike was working with Bob Dylan, and uh, and I, I gather in latterly Bob Dylan said that that Mike Bloomfield was his favorite guitarist. So I think that I think that you know Mike had obviously infused that combo with a lot of energy, and that was what I got off. Off stage when I was watching him live with uh, Butterfield was an incredible frontman harmonica player, and um, his band sported two great guitarists, Bloomfield and and Elvin Bishop. So they were they were great. The night that I saw them, they were all absolutely on fire. And and we had Al Cooper on the show probably about mm-hmm. a year ago, um, and and he kind of like you is kind of like a walking encyclopedia of music history. Uh, I mean, he's he's had his hands in. I mean, there's like three degrees of separation between him and like everything. Um, yes, and just an f- incredible, incredible keyboard player. So early days of your career, you put out an ad in the magazine Melody Maker, advertising your services and seeking a band. Peter Gabriel yes. of Genesis responds. When you think back on that moment, what sticks out in your mind? Well, the truth is, uh, I've been advertising myself for, for five years. And so it was no overnight success. Um, the, the wording of my ads became more and more specific and outrageous. And um, and that's what I think attracted Pete. Um, he could tell I was a, a, a committed, eccentric idealist um, like himself. And um, I think, you know, that's what really got me the gig. I didn't really know who Genesis were at the time. I hadn't heard of Peter Gabriel um, you have to remember this was 1970, um, and um, they were up and running and they were doing gigs, but maybe not for long. So um, I was shortly to become enlightened, of course, and um, they were a great band to join. Great band then, great band now, um, and 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 with a great frontman at the time, who was who was Peter Gabriel, who um, managed to personify so many of the songs in a convincing and entertaining way he would take huge risks at the same time i was interested in that band expanding to the point where we had our own light show and and mellotron and expanded keyboard arsenal so i thought about other things i I didn't just have my my uh my ear and eye on the on the guitar i was interested in how we presented ourselves so um i probably was hugely critical when I first joined them because I felt I had nothing to lose. You know, five years of as later, I imagined that my tenure with Genesis was going to last about five seconds, never mind the six or seven years I spent with them. So so you're then in the the band, you enter the studio with them for the first time with Nursery Crime. When all the instruments and vocals came together and you heard the final masters, what, how, how did that, what was your feeling at that moment? I was very pleased with the album because I, I'd done an album one year earlier with another band, but we'd done no shows. And the other thing about that was I could tell that it was done to a high professional standard. Um, I'm not talking about perfection because standards have changed since then. Uh, but I think we had something that... Um, uh, it, it's funny because John Lennon um, gave an interview and said 
that we were one of the bands that he considered to be true sons of the Beatles. And when I subsequently listened back to some of those early efforts, particularly with Foxtrot, I can tell that there's a Beatle influence. It's subtle at times, but there'll be times when it's it's um, me doing something that perhaps George Harrison might have done on guitar. So um, <clears throat> uh, George was was a was a big influence. Um, the Beatles were a huge influence. Uh, so when I look back on my time, I, I realized that we were the sum of our influences and trying to uh, bite through the, the chains of or, or, or the shackles of whatever it was that was holding us back with a fair amount of, of the anxiety of influence, of course, that goes in attendance with all of that. But that stays with you for life. What, what was the origin of your iconic guitar tapping method? I mean, where did those ideas come from? Well, I was trying to play one line from something I'd heard from Bach, and um, I realized that the quickest way to do it, the most efficient way, was to play it all on one string where you were hammering on and off with both hands. Um, I tapped on and off with the nail. Um, subsequently, I sometimes do it with the pad of the finger. It all depends on which, um, uh, which string you're after. If it's going to be the first string, I'll be using the pad of the nail. Um, this is probably more information you you need, but <laughs> it has spawned. Uh, my my son will it. dig it because he's he's a guitarist. Okay. So he, so and he That's already it. kind of knew about it. So this is this yes. is this this may be a selfish question, honestly. Well, it's become part of of the of the either the glossary of terms or it, it's expanded the uh, the references for guitarists. Basically, as part of guitar language, it's it's part of guitar shredding language that's that's how it how it is you're, you're you're using the whole of the fretboard rather like a keyboard so it was a keyboard player that influenced me in the first place in the shape of the glorious johann sebastian bach and if i'm not mistaken eddie van halen at some point claimed he kind of got his idea for his own guitar tapping from from attending a, a genesis show i i don't know if there was a story there or not um, apparently, yes. And um, uh, uh, I think one of his famous pieces he says he got from uh, Shadow of the Hierophant, where I've got a, a, a tapping section where the guitar is on its own and um, and it taps away. Uh, so I think the piece Eruption is, is he said, it is based on that. And uh, it's a great shame that I never got to meet him. Um, so we didn't get to connect, mm. but I know he's in spirit, and I think um, he was a stunning player. There's no doubt about that. And um, and so to play a small part in 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 uh, or, or be, be part of, of of the building blocks that enabled his incredible technique to to flourish um, is is a proud moment for me. You mentioned the Mellotron earlier. Um... And yes. and uh, and I know that you were probably, I guess, the the driving force between, you know, in having that become something that the band used. Um, one of the main reasons yes. the band added the instrument. Um, where did you first run across the the Mellotron? First time I'd seen a Mellotron used live was with King Crimson in 1969 before they recorded the extraordinary in the court of the Crimson King. Um, uh, so. I'd also seen Moody Blues with one, and it, it seemed to me that the bands that possessed that 
possessed the ability, if you closed your eyes, um, to imagine that you were watching much more than the sum of the parts. You were you were hearing a symphony orchestra plus plus a band, and depending on how it was recorded, of course, um, um, some bands managed to make make it sound just like a, a mellotron and <clears throat> a squeaky thing. Uh, other bands could make it sound absolutely symphonic. And um, uh, if you think of tracks such as Epitaph uh, with, with King Crimson, um, you hear something that is that is mighty. Um, I think that I've, I've always been drawn to the idea of symphonic rock, or rather expanded rock, uh, inclusive music. And once the Beatles started working with string sections and brass and uh, and many more things beside uh, Indian musicians, instruments that you hadn't heard of. It seems to me that world music is, is um, at its best, fully inclusive and is allowed to, in, in, in my book, is, is allowed to um, involve influences from absolutely everywhere and every, every time. Jazz influences, classical influences, pop, rock, blues, you name it. Um, it makes me think of Paul Simon's Graceland album, which which had so many African influences in it. Yes. You know, and and that and, and that was something that, you know, it was such a, it seemed like seemingly a big departure for him, but was such a, a phenomenal record in and of itself. Um, what Genesis album are you the most proud of as you look back? Or is it tough to choose because it's like choosing between children? Well, it's um, it's a, it's a funny thing. Um, I would have said um, a year or so ago, um, selling England by the pound, but it's the fiftieth anniversary this year of Foxtrot, and I'm just about to go into rehearsals with my band to go out and start playing it in its entirety. And listening back to it, some tracks which I haven't heard for a very long time, I'm struck by the quality of it, the quality of the writing, and the breadth of ideas. Um, and I think that um, I think it's extraordinarily well written. Um, as as always with with early albums, um, there are things that I would change because um, experiences, personal experiences in in production and techniques for recording things um, have shifted so greatly. You know, the goalposts have shifted so much since that time. Um, and a personal knowledge and and um and the way things are approached in uh, today the way drums are treated with compression and deliberate distortion and ambient miking and all, all of that and and to be able to create the sound of for instance the way the mellotron sounded when we were in palace sports in um sports halls in, in Italy and made the Mellotron sound absolutely huge and, and wonderful. And yet when I listen back to the album, <clears throat> I hear it sounding fairly small and dry and um, I want to change it. So over over the years, I've revisited quite a lot of this material and uh, re-recorded some of it and, and in some cases added literally a, a symphony orchestra as well. So um, um, I, I tend to pull out all the stops when I when I do re-records of um, older material, and um, I, I want to honour the spirit of the original, but I, I also want to uh, broaden its shoulders and expand the um, uh, the, the canvas 
really, you know. Um, so I, 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 I love the way it was written. Um, I think the execution can always be a little better. And I had this conversation with Bill Bruford um, some years ago where um, he said to me, oh, I understand why you want to record this stuff. You want to have it in tune and in time simultaneously. <laughs> and <laughs> this this is it. It, it, um, it, it isn't enough just to have, you know, whatever it is that, that pleased fans at the time, you want to leave it with your with your own mark on it. It even if it's just a footnote to the original to be able to say, yeah, well that bit, yeah, boom. Better guitar sound, sustain, all those things I wanted to, to have back in the day. And um um yeah, I mean I'm I'll go at these re-records very often and use up to three hundred tracks. And of course back in the day we we would have only had with with the very first album I did with Genesis, sixteen track, uh, and then twenty four, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Walk me through the creation of Firth or Fifth. How did that song come about? Um, Firth or Fifth was an idea that Tony had. Tony Banks. Um, he basically had the whole song worked out, other than the um, the instrumental parts when the when the um, uh, when the singing stopped, and um, I started playing the melody that was originally played on piano and, and would first be introduced on um, on flute. I started playing it on guitar and using bends to make it sound a little bit more Eastern. And um, I thought it was a great melody. And again, as soon as he added mellotron to it plus the band plus organ uh, plus we had bass pedals so you had all the sort of you had the kind of foundations of of, of classical stuff yes if it had been orchestra it would have been basses instead of bass pedals but uh, you had that i think mike rutherford added some sped up guitar to it um to do the arpeggios and um and i i think it was a very a very beautiful sounding track and i think phil's drumming is um is really very, very good on it. I think it was a standout track, and it's the most famous Genesis guitar solo. It is the one. That's that's it. Is it true that Dancing with the Moonlight, Moon at Night, was originally going to be called Disney? And, and, and if so, what's the story there? Um, well, actually, uh, the story is that it was probably going to be called uh, Selling England by the Pound, but that ended up being the, the title of the album. Yeah. And we didn't want to bring too much um, focus to bear on one track to the exclusion of all others. Uh, the Disney idea comes from <clears throat> the very last section, the very quiet jam over two repeated chords that Mike Rutherford plays. Um, and for some reason, we used to call it Disney. I think we had in mind that it was a little bit like a cartoon and... Um, it wouldn't be the first time that we were influenced by the, the music that Walt Disney used. And I think, again, it's, it's this Beatle connection that is is so so prevalent. Um, you hear the influence of Disney upon the Beatles. I'm the Walrus is a, is a kind of audio cartoon. Um, and, of course, became a cartoon later on when there was yep. Yellow Submarine, the, the movie. Um, but I think we Brits were, were influenced 
by uh, not just all things American, but um, all things caricature, cartoon, Pinocchio, Disney masterpieces. When you make an album, do you do, does does it mean writing songs until you stumble up into a single, or does it mean something else? In other words, are you trying to put something together that's cohesive? I'm not necessarily speaking from a theme standpoint, but you know, a lot of times with with prog rock, there is that kind of you know. Sometimes there is an ongoing theme throughout the album. When you approach an album, yes. how do you approach it? Well, I tend to approach it thematically because I often think that I've done I've done a track and it seemed perfectly good, and um, um, but then I'll start to get other ideas that could have been used in that track. Now, when I worked with Chris Squire, when we were doing Squack It, I noticed that what he tended to do was um, if somebody had an idea, and we had a three-man writing team at that time, anyone who had an idea, the song expanded to include that idea. So it would come around again, there'd be a variation, and then there might be a solo or a bit of added detail. The Genesis approach was more thematic. In other words, we would take something and reprise it. The Beatles have given us license mm -hmm. to do that, of course. Um, and um, so with Foxtrot, you'll get a recapitulation of theme at the, at the big, from the beginning of <clears throat> uh, Supper's Ready, theme comes back right at the end so um it's that kind of thinking it's really drawing more from concertos and symphonies and all of that thematic solo sort of stuff so i i do tend to think long form if i can and um um i don't really know what makes what makes a hit single i suspect what makes a hit single is the conditions surrounding the recording other than the writing you know you have to have for a hit single a sufficiently young team who have a record company who are pulling out all the stops who are right behind them um, then you have full license to go and write the kind of stuff that will thrill people of all ages and um, uh, in my whole time 50 years plus in the music business I've only really been involved with three hit singles and one was with genesis it was i know what i like um, the other one was a solo piece called one one five one cell one five one from highly strong and the other one was when i was working with steve howe when we had gtr and um we had a hit with when the heart rolls the mind so um i think those songs were written to order as singles and um, that's quite rare for progressively minded musicians it doesn't happen every day of the week but when you've got somebody like clive davis behind you um as as it was when we were doing um uh, a gtr um we were aware that um we were in a position uh where if we did something that would be accepted by the media by mtv at that time um we could perhaps upgrade ourselves from being um, something that was merely progressive and um, and we, we could run with the ball with that. And I, I think it was it was a song I was, I was very proud of. And we worked together and I re-recorded it in, in recent years, um, not just with Steve Howe, but with, with um, 
uh, Steve Rothery of Marillion. And um, uh, I think that it came out very well indeed. And I'm often thinking that <laughs> it was put on a, on, a, on a box set and probably all those people who didn't go out and buy the box set may have missed it on its, um, on its, its revisit. Um, so uh, maybe at some point it should be included on on um, on something that's uh, a more digestible thing. In other words, yeah, something where you're not forking out all that money for for a box set. But um, I was very proud of that. Anyway, I thought it had a great sound. It could probably be upgraded still now. Was there any song in the Genesis discography that surprised you at how well it did? Well, I was surprised that I know what I liked it as well as it did because uh, I used to joke about it being our hit single. I joked about it, I think, to enough DJs that they thought I was being serious. And then, lo and behold, the joke stuck and uh, it became a hit. Is there a Genesis album that you feel has stood the, the test of time best? Um, <clears throat> well, I suspect that's probably Foxtrot because of the breadth of the writing. I know that um, one night I was heading into a club and I used to know the guy on the door and he always had music playing. Uh, and um, and I heard something and uh, and I said, oh, that sounds interesting. Who's that? He said, you're joking, aren't you? That's you guys. And it was a section out of Can Utility, uh, the last song on the first side, as it was, of Foxtrot. And it was a song I'd written and spearheaded and I didn't recognize it at all. I just wandered in and I heard it in, in the distance and I thought, oh, that sounds good. They sound, they kind of sound symphonic, these guys. Again, Mertron, that thing, you know, orchestra and band. And that was always the idea of two separate schools of, of, of thought, you know, the instinctive, untrained musicians working with trained and the score sheet meets, meets the riff and all of that, um, improvisation, all of those different things that, a kind of contradictory coming together, a fusing together. Um, because I, I always loved the term fusion, but that was reserved specifically for jazz rock at a certain point in time. Um, but I always loved the idea of, of the ter terminology. And I used to use the word collision uh, for, for that, you know, different worlds colliding. And um, I, I like that, you know, when you get, some two things together that, that really shouldn't belong and perhaps orchestras should never work with bands and bands should never work with orchestras but when they do you get something really wonderful incidentally um, I, I i heard some stuff recently that neil young had done with orchestra and big band and and i thought yeah great you know back to the um the heady days of man needs a maid um uh always thought that that worked very very well I'm, I'm sitting here now trying to think of rust never sleeps with an orchestra um so is there a genesis song you think that's that stood the test of time the best well my favorite genesis tune of all time is dancing with the moonlit night because i think that it goes through so many changes from a cappella plain song at the beginning through to something that's elgarian and then something that one could only describe as the fusion but with a nod to Mozart in places. And um, and uh, I don't think anyone has ever written anything quite like that. And I, I think it's full testament to for Collins drumming that he was able to take everyone's <clears throat> ideas and fuse them all together and make it swing because uh, 
um, there are moments where almost every bar changes and there's there's a change of gear um, going on the whole time. So it's it's absolute changes of scene that are going on all the time. And um, I think it's very difficult to make that sort of thing work. I think a lot of the time, drummers that deal with that sort of stuff tend to make it sound staccato. But then I think because he had uh, the Buddy Rich influence, um, in other words, a sophisticated swing, um, he was able to bring the use of accents and syncopation uh, to Genesis, which was, you know, at that time, largely, largely based on, on classical music and uh, made it work very, very well. And and his drumming and, and the mm. Genesis drum sound is, is yeah. different from so many others. Was that based on miking or how how was that achieved? Because it's there's just a it's a fuller sound. It's a different sound than than I can think of pretty much any other band. No. Well, I think in the early days he was very frustrated with the drum. Um, drums hadn't quite learned how to how to be live. You know, no one was using compression and distortion and ambient miking. That was to come later. That was really, you know, uh, um, a product of the 1980s. But there was something about the, the drum sound on Genesis Live, that first live album that was originally done as a as a King Biscuit flower hour oh, wow. giveaway. And um, uh, so we put that out as a stopgap between albums. And when you listen to that back, you can hear some great drumming, and uh, and and I think the beginnings of that modern sound that Phil did so well. What do you see as major differences between Phil and Peter as vocalists? I mean, what different skills did each bring to the table? In in happy with you having worked with both. Well, I think they had remarkably similar voices in terms of both having the equivalent of a, of a brass instrument. Or, a rock voice uh, that blasts microphones. Um, I think that perhaps uh, Pete's approach was more cerebral um, and he was more of a storyteller. And certainly in the early days of Genesis, the actors approach something of the bard in there as well. Um, with Phil, I think that he, he had the ability to be, to be every man and um, just obviously had the touch at, at a time when the band needed that and his own career of course took off like a rocket um there there were similarities um, uh, when phil took over as a vocalist from pete um he was covering much of the same material and as far as audiences were concerned that hadn't seen the band live um, they barely noticed the blip because he was also a great mimic um but um but Pete has a great voice. Um, Pete worked on an album with George Martin that was a Larry Adler album, and the first track on it is Summertime. And Pete's version of that, I, I said to him afterwards that I thought that was the definitive version of Gershwin's Summertime. So Pete has great soul with his voice. Um, <clears throat> I think Phil took a poppier direction. Um, and um, I mean, I guess their influence was it would be very fairly close. Phil's with Tamil and Motown, and and Pete's with soul music. So um, yeah, I think you you know you've got you've got two white guys there, but there's no doubt about 
you know, where they're looking. They're looking across the pond to earlier models of great singing from from the oppressed. On on your first solo album, uh, Voyage <clears throat> of the of the Acolyte, you brought Phil Collins and Mike Rutherford on board. Yeah. What did both of them bring to to that album? Um, I think they brought um, spontaneity and um, something that um, was extraordinary because I was showing them arrangements at two and three in the morning because I could only get nighttime sessions in the in the cheap studio that I that I that I'd gotten hold of and I didn't know whether I was going to come up with a bunch of outtakes or a complete album. But, you know, they really gave it something. I mean, even on the first track, it's got fire from the word go, because I was doing it live again um, with, a, with the Hungarian band, Jave, and they were taking it at, at the pace of the, uh, of the original recording, which is very, very fast. So I'm going to do it with my own band shortly when we're off on tour, and um, I think they gave it a lot, of, a lot of intensity, and they were very quick on the uptake, learning the material, and... Um, and so I think they gave it a lot, yes. Was there any reluctance to bring in your Genesis bandmates to your solo project? I mean, like essentially invite them into your kitchen, so to speak? Uh, no, I'd, I'd ask them separately whether they were prepared to do that because at that point in time, most of us in Genesis, uh, because we were a four-man team at the time, uh, were shortly to be engaged in solo things or or things which were extracurricular outside of of Genesis, so um, and Mike Rutherford was due to work with um, Anthony Phillips, my pre predecessor in Genesis, and and Phil, um, of course, um, um, uh, Brand X was on the horizon for him. So we were engaged in doing things um, post Peter Gabriel's tenure with the band, so tenure, so that we could. Um, um, all let off a bit of steam. So that, that was the atmosphere at the time. Nobody really knew whether Genesis was going to be a going concern or not after that, because Phil was getting itchy feet. I felt that with the loss of Peter Gabriel, um, the band's future was by no means um, assured. And so at that time, it was the right time to experiment. And so I was able to do something with Acolyte because I had carte blanche to, to do anything I wanted. And that was a very exciting time. Also very exciting working with my brother, John. Uh, it was his first fully professional debut on record and he was playing wonderfully. So flute was a very big part of that, that album. Um, and many parts of it were acoustic, but it was our version of, of being acoustic. And um, so uh, we were, both living back at home at that time with with with, with parents and um, not getting a lot of sleep, but getting great satisfaction coming back with tapes that we'd be playing um, the next day and thinking, "Wow, this is taking shape. It's it's going somewhere." I'm thrilled with it. So, on your solo records, you've worked with kind of a who's who of American artists, from Richie Havens to Steve Walsh of Kansas. Can can you talk about those collaborations a bit? What drew you to those artists? Well, um, Richie Havens, um, I met him, although we'd done some gigs together where he was topping the bill, um, over the passing of time, suddenly we were topping the bill and uh, we were playing London's Earl's Court 
and I asked I asked him to dinner. I met him and and his keyboard player um, Dave LeBolt, and um, and at the end of the evening, he suggested we work together. I didn't want to be too pushy, but I absolutely loved him, adored his voice. We all did in Genesis, and um, um, so I I you know we used to see him every every time he was in every time he was in London, and um, so that was great. Steve Walsh, I, I, I met the band Kansas, and um, um, uh, I knew that, that they'd had great success with uh, the album that had um, Carry On Wayward Son, and I loved his voice. It was absolutely great. So I liked working with those guys. That, that was great as well. Did you get to work with Jimmy Page on that Box of Frogs album, Strange Lands? I mean, the image of having both of you in the same room together kind of blows my mind a bit. Well, um, we vaguely knew each other, but uh, we, we weren't in the same room at the same time. But that's a very interesting, you know, Box of Frogs was the reform, the Yardbirds, and that was really great. Now, my only problem is I have another interview coming up in five minutes. So, uh, well, then I will uh, get to, I'll get to the last few and let's we'll wrap it up. Sure. Uh, yeah. So, so you mentioned earlier GTR, which is one of the greatest yep. supergroups of all time, with fellow guitarist Steve Howe. Whose idea was that, and and why did the other guy accept? Well, that's interesting because I was talking to um, uh, Brian Lane, who'd managed Yes and was the manager of Asia, and Steve Howe had just left Asia, and um, because we were near neighbors. Um, I was, I, Brian named this as the manager, um, and he said to me, Steve Howe isn't doing anything at this moment in time. And um, basically we hit on the idea of what would it be like if two guitarists got together and and did something. Had there been any instances in the past of two guitarists of, of, of some pedigree doing something together? Um, and, you know, you'd have to go back to earlier models of the Stones and and the Yardbirds uh, for that. And um, again, you know, this this thing that, that certain bands had spawned great, great combinations of, of players, Jimmy Page and, and Jeff Beck was, 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 was one of them. So um, I think, you know, we were fans of these people um, who may have been from a slightly er earlier era. And um, it worked very well for a couple of years it worked very well indeed. And uh, as I say, Clive Davis was hugely responsible for getting behind that. And um, we were going to be signed to Geffen. They went off the boil. And it was it was, it was was um, Clive Davis who, uh, who saved the day for us and, and gave us um, a hit album. Um, what projects do you have moving forward? I know you said something about working with your band and some touring and stuff. What, what have you got coming up? Um, I've got basically um, I, this year I've been touring literally everywhere for fulfilling commitments for people who, who bought tickets three years ago. Um, yeah. uh, what I've got coming up is I've got a few American and Canadian dates because we didn't get to finish those uh, because of COVID restrictions yeah. and what have you. So we're coming back to do a handful of shows uh, and it'll be Nick DeVigilio who will be with us. Um, joining us for the first time live. Looking forward to that. Nick also has um, a, a history of, of working with Genesis. So um, I've recorded with him on a couple of different projects. I'm sure that's going to be great. Looking forward to that tremendously. So um, 
that's a new thing. I have a few new things recorded for a new new album. Um, I'm going to take a little bit of time to to dedicate to that at the beginning of next year. But from here until then, we're basically wall to wall with shows just everywhere. And lastly, where can our viewers go to follow what's going on with you? Any websites or social media handles that yep. we can throw up here on the screen there? Absolutely, yes. Um, it's it's www.hackitsongs.com. Hackett Songs, all one word, lowercase, hackitsongs.com. You'll get all the information about everything I've done for the past 100 years and um, and beyond. Steve, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I mean, it's been it's been a real pleasure and and somewhat educational. Ladies and gentlemen, Steve Hackett. Thank you. Been great talking to you. Love your jacket, by the way. Thank you, sir.